Hello everyone, this is The Right Creed and my name is Aisha and today on our show we have uh, my dear friend Waleed from Mumbai. Today we are going to discuss about how he came to India from Kuwait and uh, his passion uh, for cricket and writing. So yeah, over to you Waleed, let's uh, talk about Kuwait first, you know. <laughs> I mean, how Hello. many years there and how uh, your, uh, your story of how you started from there and then you moved to India. Okay. Hello. Thank you for having me on board. I guess going back would be uh, probably going back about 40 or 40 years. That's uh, in the, um, I mean, I was born in Kuwait in, um, in the 70s. Hmm. Uh, this was basically a country that was uh, probably the size of a peanut, but had uh, more dollars than uh, the United States of America together. Because Kuwait has always had the most expensive currency in the world, uh, and it's held that it's held that uh, till date. It's one of those really uh, you know uh, beautiful oasis in the middle of uh, the scorching desert, which is uh, gifted by uh, by having uh, you know humongous supply of uh, crude oil in its little small landmass. So. Most of uh, most of us Indian expats, you know, who, who were basically called NRIs then, were uh, pretty rich. And uh, in comparison to what uh, what what was happening back home in India, because we're talking about the 70s, the 80s, which is when the government basically did not have any um, liberalisation, and uh, most things were prohibited. So a lot of control was uh, with the government, and, and the population really didn't have many options per se as they have today. Hmm. So for for us uh, for us uh, you know NRI brats you know life was uh, pretty smooth sailing I mean we had almost just about every luxury possible that uh, that money could buy and we were much ahead of our uh, of our time in terms of technology in terms of paying. Yeah, uh, I remember a, I remember it, once you told me you had an ATV and uh, all terrain vehicle when, yeah, when yeah. you were like uh, just out of Todd or something. <laughs> yeah, I had two of those, one a four-wheeler, one a three-wheeler because we had loads of uh, sand dunes just behind our uh, house. So then, you know, crossing over was uh, quite a pain. So you either had to take a car and take a long detour or you take the ATV and, you know, just negotiate the sand dunes to uh, to get to the other side and, uh, and then just play football because that's the one uh, sport that almost every kid in Kuwait played because uh, cricket and baseball weren't really uh, such big uh, uh, on the popularity charts. Now, what was high on the popularity charts in uh, Kuwait was uh, football and uh, mostly basketball. And those are the two sports that most of us actually played. I, I did uh, well in uh, in football. Um, I was uh, selected in amongst the state side, you know, the underage and all those teams. So I was pretty much uh, inclined to take up football and probably you know try my luck at the EPL or uh, look at a club somewhere in in Europe and do that. So that was my aim. And then uh, Saddam Hussein happened. Okay. And uh, overnight. That was 1991. Uh, 1991. 19, 19, August, uh, 2nd of August, 1990. That's okay. when uh, Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait. And uh, basically displaced, uh, you know, a couple of thousand people who were, who were pretty well settled and, um, you know, living a really good, cushioned life to suddenly, you know, being uh, refugees and not having drinking water or food or even electricity supply. Uh, Kuwait usually has temperatures between uh, the 40s to up to like 50, 52 
uh, degrees centigrade, and that we are all used to air conditioning because everything is air conditioning. The homes, the schools, uh, the malls, the cars, everything. So it's barely ever that we face the heat, and then uh, all of a sudden, you know, you have to face the heat because there is no electricity supply in the entire country. So then that uh, uh, that that forced uh, a lot of uh, us Indians to you know go back home, basically, which is India. So that's how. Uh, you know, landed it, was never, the, it was never home for you, right? Until then, like the only home you knew was Kuwait. Yes, it was a strange land. It was a vacation trip uh, for us. You know, India was just where relatives used to live. Home was always and probably will be Kuwait because you know that's where I was born and brought up. Spent twelve years of my uh, li- early life in uh, in that uh, small country. So you know, for me, that will always have the inclination of being home. Uh, okay. Something I could call. Uh, you know my own even though you know there's not much uh, to talk about Kuwait other than the fact that it's sand and oil but um, you know uh, it has the essence of home it has that uh, it has that feeling of um, of being uh, you know close to one's heart so that's that's always going to be so anyway that's how uh, you know we landed up in india because you know your passport indian so then you know, you go back home to wherever uh, your country is and that's how we landed here and it was pretty much a huge cultural shock because you know technically i was a brat and i came back to a, a country that was still not open to liberalization till that point of time so you know the only entertainment available on tv at that point of time was doordarshan and doordarshan one so there was no mm. concept of cable or star or whatever they they came in uh, i think somewhere at the end of 1991 uh, closer to 92 mm. Uh, yeah. With the launch of uh, Benson and Hedges World Cup, that's how Star launched its new, um, you know, channels, etc. So, but that, but year and a half that we spent here it was was huge cultural shock. Yes, uh, nobody played football here at that point in time because there was uh, no space. Everyone in, in small lanes or courtyards actually just played cricket. Yeah. So that was like the first introduction to this. The sport that looked a bit like baseball. Only difference was that you kept the bat on the ground and not in the air. Okay. So that's my introduction to yeah, that was my introduction to cricket. That you know, you just there's a ball, somebody hurls it at you, and you throw it. So I had an idea of uh, baseball, but I never had any idea of cricket. So this was. So you uh, started new. you started playing cricket with gully cricket basically, like you know the. So in school, the yeah. When I joined school, yeah. When I joined school here. in india that's when uh, you know everyone would play uh, only cricket in in school in the playgrounds or in the gullies so that was the only recreational sport that uh, was available so you know for how long would i just stand on the uh, by the fence and, and, and watch them so at some point time i got interested and started playing okay but i was horrible at it um because you know i had absolutely no idea about the rules or you know what uh, how do you score and what you can do what you can't do so it was a pretty horrible um, Uh, cricket Gully player. Cricketer. Yeah, yeah. In the initial uh, stages that I was introduced to cricket, uh, then uh, like I think a, you know, a couple of years later, my uh, my mom passed away, and uh, I was in. I went into depression. I was almost uh, suicidal. Uh, we close my mom that time. So then you know the her loss was very uh, uh, was very deep. It hurt me in in, in a very uh, deep manner. And it was my school friends who then sort of you know. to uh to pull me out of the depressed state that i was would take me to the to the azad maidan and you know uh, just invite me over to play cricket so that i would get distracted or you know i would have some sort of a um, uh, you know an activity or a hobby to do that take my mind away from the huge loss that i had just suffered 
and um, that was in a way uh, acted as a catalyst i mean i i got interested in cricket because uh, um, you know that was the, the the direction that my passion towards my mom was then aimed at so because i couldn't go home and um, you know find my mom i would stay at the maidan more often and uh, by watching people uh, play cricket there and so the season ball and i enrolled myself in one of the uh, coaching clubs there and you know those guys taught me a few tricks and then from there on i i picked up and uh, i think in a year after that i was playing in the underage uh, cricket i was selected with the mca teams i got picked for club cricket etc my advantage i probably had at that point time was i was about uh, 510 at the age of uh, you know 16 17 so uh, a lot of people didn't think i was a kid you know they just thought i was a scrawny teenager or or you know or a youth who was just uh, skinny but mm-hmm. i could tonk the ball and i had good timing and eyesight so you know that's how i made it into uh, the club level and gradually uh, i was selected in the uh, you know for the university sides i tried my hand at uh, the ranji teams in uh, in a couple of states to speak for um, you know lots of um, uh, first class uh, games here and there and um, i gave it a shot i gave it a good shot i i spent about 6 uh, or 7 years trying to break in to uh, you know to the upper level of cricket and uh, when i couldn't that's how um, you know the journalism happened to me because all why, these years why of, why couldn't you like what was that uh, uh, see the one, the the one thing <laughs> the one thing that i uh, that i realized was that because of the stiff competition available in in mumbai uh, mm. which was still in bombay uh, the one factor that always played a, a big hand was having a godfather a, to help you get into the selection panel and not okay. saying that the kids who get who get selected are any less talented than the others mm. but the only difference is that that all of them are are equally at par so the, out of the 30 students or 30 cricketers that turn up for a selection trial Uh, it's difficult to uh, to sort of you know differentiate one from the other because you know they're all as good as the other what uh, makes a difference from the 30 into the 16 is many a times you know influence uh, sometimes godfather sometimes the clubs that you play for you know their seniors or their selectors will uh, put in a word for you and uh, you'll get you'll go ahead in life so i lacked that because uh, i really didn't have any support from my family for playing cricket because they thought it was a waste of time They didn't realize uh, uh, I was good enough to actually break into uh, you know proper big teams, and I was into playing serious cricket. So uh, I think a lot of support from my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my coach wasn't uh, as big a name as the others who were available and in the competition. Um, okay. I played under 19s with uh, you know guys like Wasim Jafar and Zaheer Khan. So mm-hmm. you know we were all at par at at one point of time. You know we played a lot of club cricket against each other. So. Um, you know, we were at par when it came to the talent. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a, I have a hundred. I have a century at national. I have a hundred at uh, CCI. I have a century at uh, Sasanian. So I have, I have got some scores against some really good teams and good sides and good players who actually went on to play for India and mm-hmm. made a good mark for themselves. So I didn't give myself enough time. And during the period that I was actually playing active, uh, you know, professional cricket, I was also writing the sports column. for newspapers and contributing it to them because you know i was in the match so i would make the match report i would okay. file the scores i would you know was basically just uh, write whatever happened and i would hand it over to the to the editor or the or the cricket reporter for whose life 
made it, I made his life really simple and really easy because you know I I wrote it well and I mean as a report all they had to do was just you know sort of work on the headline and uh, maybe cut up a few words if it didn't fit the column and it was all ready so you know so, I was uh, so that's how you got your first byline is it yeah, or yeah, I was or pretty they- sought after yeah by you know most uh, sports journalists are pretty sought after so they would just ask me that to you know send it over and then uh, I would uh, you know do a xerox copy and then fax it to like three or four uh, newspaper offices and you know they they would just take it so that's <laughs> why uh, so that was my introduction to um, to you know journalism so okay. not the cricket writer and the reporter and uh, from you know from there on then um, uh, there was a time in my life when i was at threshold thinking okay no what do i do now so do i um, do i continue to pursue uh, my professional life as a cricketer or do i look at another profession so the uh, the uh, the tipping bar actually there was that i had rescued a team in the semi final and uh, we were chasing some uh, 292 odd and i got about 202 in that match uh, uh, and single handedly you know basically took them to the finals and in the finals i was made the 12th man because oh. uh, somebody's son wanted to play and somebody's brother wanted to play and these people were important people for the club that i was playing for uh, so and it was a prestige issue for them to play in this uh, particular uh, final of uh, this tournament so you know they turned up and they didn't care if the if the club won or lost so you know that was like the like the last straw so to speak when mm-hmm. i said that you know, okay i i can't uh, i can't keep doing this and, and not be rewarded for this so that's when i made the active uh, switch to uh, to full time uh, journalism and i took up a job with uh, cricketinfo.com at that point i became their western zone um, correspondent Uh, went on to become a live reporter. I used to do. Uh, I was one of the first people in the in the team that started the ball by ball commentary in okay. India. So I was part of the first team uh, in that before that that did that. So there were about you know five or six of us. So but I was also part of that uh, team. And it was a huge honor to be part of that team, and it was great fun because uh, not only were we watching uh, live international matches from the press box in the stadium, but mm-hmm. we were also like you know literally typing commentary it was not just about talking this was about actually typing you know every ball yeah, yeah. and did what so there's a lot of hard work yeah, there was a lot of hard work but it was fun as well it was like really good fun um i had the advantage of knowing a certain number of players because you know we had played uh, in the club levels together in first class and under 19 etc so we played together so it was much easier for me to have access to players So which gave me uh, good access to have uh, interviews as well because they were more comfortable talking to me than uh, talking to any other reporter who they did not know that well. So that was another advantage that helped me, you know, become a better uh, correspondent and a cricket journalist. So that's how my uh, journey landed up there. And then from from there on, um, I mean, it's been uh, what twenty so odd years. From sports journalism to hardcore newsroom, like how did you? Make that transition. Like, why not like just a sports journalist career? You know. Yeah, this is a funny. This is a funny story because uh, what happened was that most sports journalists usually are the ones who uh, are left behind in the office to hang around for breaking stories or something like that. Because if something happens, you know, one guy can change it. Mm-hmm. So what happened was on that particular day, a, a particular uh, uh, crime happened in the city. and there was really no one else in the newsroom other than me and um, and we had to change the front page because that was a big uh, 
story okay. so i changed the front page i gave the headline i i spun the story around i edited it and you know made a package out of it gave some uh, background info put some boxes value addition whatever else i could do to to make it uh, so which, jazz which it paper up. was this which uh, which newspaper was that this was for this was this was for uh, this for the toi toi okay the um, realized that the next day i got uh, you know uh, the editor said that okay you know good job i mean we didn't think you would do such a good job and then from there i sort of you know was uh, invited over to uh, try my hand at uh, you know proper general news and then from there on i went on to make like the world page then i worked on the nation page i worked on the city pages i went on to work on the front page so um you know gradually uh, yeah, work came kept coming my way and i started accepting it and fortunately i excelled at it I, the only uh, area of uh, journalism that i am uh, not good at is actually business journalism because <laughs> i could not bring myself to understand the terms and the way and the nature of that uh, of the functioning yeah, of this stuff and then they like the, the the other thing is you know when you go to the economic times office i remember at that point of time it used to be gray and that used to be like it used to just put Absolutely. me off just getting into the office if at all there was any draw in just looking at that office was like okay <laughs> ऑफिसमें Which was a tabloid? Yeah. Color. Because it was a tabloid. Yes, yes. <laughs> the walls had color and figurines, and there was there were like you know paintings and there were things hanging all over the place. And I was like, okay, this looks more like a uh, like an advertising office than it looks uh, like newsroom. So the first uh, first time I saw like a really jazzed up or a colorful newsroom, uh, colorful in the sense of the decor and not the journalism was uh, when i when i moved to to midday so that's the that's the first time i saw how much more you know one could do uh, without actually losing out on the seriousness of journalism it's called a tabloid but midday is actually a very serious newspaper it's a very serious it's, 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 i think it's the best crime paper in bombay i mean like, you know that's yeah. our english probably the only crime paper in bombay <laughs> in fact that is what you would expect you would expect like a tabloid would look at you know um, lighter stories and play up uh, a bit of uh, you know entertainment when i was doing page 3 in bombay uh, times i remember you know the first time when i went in as intern and i was like holy shit you know after like bsc life sciences and now chemistry what will my parents think i'm sitting and doing page 3 parties and when i entered the office the people i met like abilasha was I am a grad. Then there was Ashraf. There was Manish Patroli, who is like a fantastic crime journalist. Uh, there was, <laughs> you know, there was a mix of people, like uh, right. And then I got it that the idea is to create a newspaper that appeals to a certain audience and doesn't want an intellectual paper, like. And it's 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 a lot of effort to do that as well, like you know, getting gossip. <laughs> is not the easiest thing to do <laughs> so you know yeah. most people think that uh, you know the newspapers like mail today or mumbai mirror or even midday for that matter just because they are in a tabloid size 
the journalism there is not serious but, but mm-hmm. honestly it's far more serious because you know it has to be both um honest objective and at the same time attractive to the reader mm-hmm. because the the, uh, the biggest competition for them is the broadsheet newspaper around which is either you know the express or toi or hindu for that matter so these uh, newspapers are always newspapers with a serious tone and uh, if you have to compete with them and sort of you know whatever talk to them in the same new sense then you have to be taken seriously and yeah. um, i think over like whatever 10 12 years that that mirror was in uh, was in circulation and mm-hmm. uh, the brief time that mail today was also in uh, circulation uh, what they've been able to do is that a lot of uh, broadsheets were then forced to uh, repackage their stories to look or give the tabloid feel yeah even though their size is still you know the broadsheet so yeah. these no, broadsheets have also become smaller in size over a period of time like they are more compact less like in terms of the width of the paper as physical width of the paper as well i mean they become like smaller and smaller to make it more compact and to allow for that kind of so it's somewhere like in between the old broadsheet and the new like, tabloid yeah. you know that that kind of packaging but uh, yeah. but also speaking of midday like i remember you know there were those uh, what was the diana like the agony aunt column called dear diana dear diana okay and i remember you were writing that <laughs> at some point oops okay that's a secret <laughs> that's a secret that's trade secret <laughs> so diana could be a man basically yes but uh, but honestly that was uh, the dear diana agony aunt column was one of our most uh, popular columns uh, over the years okay. uh, for whatever 20 25 whatever years that it ran yeah. it was a very popular column yeah. and um, similarly was uh, whatsapp's column for mirror yeah that, that was so, brilliant <laughs> yeah so you know, there there was a there was an audience for these uh, for these columns and uh, there was a, there was an active consumption yeah uh, huge audience It's not just like a weekly column. This was the no. daily column, and uh, people actually responded. Uh, there was all this feedback. You know, this is something. This is also something I've learned over the years in journalism that when you get uh, criticism from readers over anything that you do, you mm-hmm. should actually look at it positively because that means someone's reading your work. Yeah. If you yeah. don't get any feedback at all, uh, there is always a doubt whether is someone actually you know reading what we're putting out there. or are they just buying it and you know sending it to the to the garbage man or something so when people actually send back uh, you know criticism to anything that you write a column mm-hmm. a news story mm-hmm. you know picture so it, it tells us that you know what kind of an audience is watching what kind of an audience is consuming our content and what is it that they really want so it helps uh, even uh, newspapers and journalists to change uh, and evolve their style of reporting or the style of uh, presenting their stories mm-hmm. so you know uh, over the years uh, midday used to do comic book style stories like convert an entire story into a full page comic uh, mm-hmm. comic style not actually uh, in the literal sense but there would be a graphic story so it would be yeah. uh, like panels and the entire story would be told in uh, in caricatures or in illustrations So basically, that, you could like read it in a train. You know, you could just flip yes, through the pages yes, and then yes. read the whole, uh, whole, yes. the whole page. You know, that kind of. Stuff. And imagine, and imagine broadsheets like uh, the TOI and Hindustan Times were later forced, even DNA to that uh, to that matter, were then forced to carry 
one of these stories almost every single day because they saw that there is a popularity for this style of storytelling yeah. and therefore you know uh, you know broadsheets went out and hired illustrators who would then you know sit and draw these stories and you know turn them into storyboards and and sell them to so you know in 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 many ways any innovation that came from whichever quarter a tabloid a magazine uh, a broadsheet the others are always forced to follow it because the audience is consuming it and therefore um, that is one step where you know everyone has to evolve because if you don't then you are left behind and if you're yeah. left behind then you know no one's going to take you seriously no one's going to read your copies no one's going to look at uh, your edition and gradually you will fade away which is practically what happened to about five uh, english dailies in bombay there used to be 10 at one point of time yeah. now there are only five and I, and that's um, also because of this whole uh, i mean over the last two years because of covid everything has moved on by yes, yes, because you yes, have to like, stop covid away. has been covid has been the last straw but uh, over the years the newspapers and the brands that did not evolve hmm. that did not move with the times um were literally uh, left uh, hanging so when when covid the and the pandemic happened they really had no other option but to shut down so now like they most had, now most newspapers like even the ones who shut down or like you know they're like all pushing everything into the digital space right they're like the tweets the websites the yes, uh, videos the podcasts like you know it's all happening there because the print has gone uh pretty much consumption is moved see the thing is the consumption of news has now moved from the newspaper the physical print to the palm of your hand so news is now actually consumed off twitter off facebook and to to a larger extent even on whatsapp forwards so news is now no longer consumed by uh, people or even on websites of news agencies they basically would uh, stroll through twitter feeds and yeah. you know, get all the possible news that they want in the shape of the headline and the photograph whatever and then move on Yeah. and that uh, is the new age because when people are consuming it in a in a certain way or in a certain platform uh, news organizations are forced to then run to that of that particular platform because they cannot uh, hold on and say that you know we are actually a print publication we will always produce the news offline because uh, you've been in a newsroom i've been in a newsroom you know that whatever we publish is yesterday's news yeah so yeah. it's and, not today <laughs> it's not right exactly. now <laughs> <laughs> and today's news is already consumed off social media. Yeah. So what exactly as a as a newspaper publisher will you offer the reader the next morning that yeah. uh, he or she has not already consumed today? The cloud at large has become your source of news. When does the objectivity come in? Well, when I teach uh, students of journalism at the colleges in, uh, in Bombay and Delhi, I've actually been trying to tell them that. Uh, explain to them the concept of the source mm-hmm. of a of a news story the concept of a source is not always the 100% news story that you ultimately consume so a source for the longest time has been uh, the police has been the public at large has been a government official yeah. has been your neighbor has sometimes even been the auntie next door or mm-hmm. you know the society chatterbox mm-hmm. so a source can be anyone mm-hmm. what used to happen about 20 odd years ago is that uh, people used to send in letters they used to mm-hmm. write letters because you know uh, at that point of time the internet was not as popular and widely available as it is today 
So a lot of people used to write letters. They used to fax it to the newsrooms, and there was used to be one, uh, you know, uh, assignments or letters editor who would sit and sift through all of those. Uh, he or she would then, you know, read and find out what the sources were, then uh, pass it on to the relevant uh, editors or the chief reporter, who would then pass it on to the uh, reporter, who would then actually go out and investigate, who would actually find out. whether the source is actually credible or not so this uh, aspect of uh, checking the source and its credibility continues to exist today the okay. only difference is the pace is much faster hmm. so what happens now is that you know when uh, when, a, when a person tweets that he or she has been attacked on a roadside by some ruffians hmm. the source is available on the ground hmm. the reporter will then pick that source check it first with the local police station has a particular has this incident happened at this place so the police if they have a report there they will say yes if the police has cctv footage they will provide that footage and say yes this certain incident has happened so once you have uh, you know um, accountability done once you have the source verified then the reporter moves forward with that story okay. so this is when you don't have visual evidence when you have visual evidence then one uh, one path of correcting or checking that source is already cleared because you yeah. have video footage yeah then from video footage the second step again is the official version because without okay. an official version any story doesn't stand otherwise it's all live so a story has to have two sides one uh, if there are two parties in it both parties must be represented and if it involves a legal body then the legal body needs to be um, uh, you know mentioned in it or uh, quoted it and in most uh, cases we look at uh, crime stories where you either the, the matter is in front of the court so then the court's uh, judgment or the ruling or the observation has to be a part of the story and if it is a fresh case a fight between two people or an argument over over a society matter or for that matter potholes on the road so there again one has to take two sides the sources again coming back to the the, the beginning of the source the sources are plenty now because yeah. of the advent of social media whatsapp phones uh, smartphones you know there is a lot more um, you know news content and source available in the raw format yeah. that is circulated so what news organizations still do is that they still process it they don't uh, publish it directly but the oh, other yeah. thing is that people who have access to news also have access to social media handles you know for yeah. their own handle so they will they will publish the content irrespective because they don't have any accountability if at all something yeah. does go bad for them it is a viral video mm-hmm. so the news organizations whenever they pick something like that they will always have to look for the other side okay so even if even if the source is uh, you know supremely accurate without cross checking not many organizations will take it and if they do then they land up in trouble so on on that note i'm going to end this episode and uh, thank you so much for sharing your story from the quit to cricket to journalism and uh, we hope to have uh, more of you in the future as well, well thank you thank you so much for having me here